Hello there, Jeremy Howard again from Orchard Hills Bible Church in Payson, Utah, here to discuss the Bible because you Latter-day Saints are studying the Bible or reading through the Bible this year, particularly the Old Testament. So I just want to give you a biblical perspective on the Old Testament from biblical theology. I'm a pastor at a Bible church. I want to give you that sort of perspective on it and maybe provoke your thinking in a few areas and give you some fodder that you can take with you to your Sunday school class or that you can have with other families in your ward as you read through this together or even your own family. Well, today we are covering a massive chunk of Scripture. I can't believe that this chunk is just relegated to a single week, Genesis 6 through 11. There's a lot to see and a lot to understand, so we should just jump right into it. Let's look at Genesis chapter 6, and we'll start with verse 5. There's a lot of stuff we're just going to have to skip uh, for the sake of time, but I'm going to try to hit what I feel are the most important things for you to uh, understand in in this section. So in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, it says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man, or the evil of man, was great on the earth, that every intent... All the intents of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Wow, that's really, really bad. That's comprehensive. Uh, the wickedness of man was great on the earth. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Those are exclusive statements about how bad man's condition was. And then we have this amazing verse, verse 6, The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved it says, in his heart. Another way to read that would be to his heart. He was grieved to his heart. But he was sorry that he had made man. He was grieved in his heart. Well, we need to stop right there and consider uh, what this means. If you notice, as I use this program, when I highlight something in English here, where the blue box on the left is, a blue box in the middle pops up. It's the Hebrew word that corresponds with that English word for the translation. And because this is a cool program, you can highlight it and you can say, I want to search that in the Hebrew Bible and see the other places where that particular word is used in the Old Testament. So we'll do that. And now you can see, here's the first instance of it is Genesis 6.6. 6. I highlight the red Hebrew word, which is the word we searched, and it shows me over in the English translation how it's translated. Genesis 24.67, it's translated as comforted in that case. Genesis 38, 12, talking about a time of mourning. Time of mourning is that translation. But let's go down to this Exodus usage. Exodus 32, 12. Um, Moses is interceding for Israel. And he's calling on God to turn from his burning anger and to change his mind. And you see over here in the Hebrew are word that's read. That's the one we searched, the word for sorry in Genesis 6.6. It's translated here to change, to change your mind. The whole phrase is found wrapped up in that one Hebrew word. And it says, just a couple of verses later in Exodus 32.14, that the Lord did change his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. So Moses interceded and God responded by, it says in the text, changing his mind. 
Now look at the very next appearance of this Hebrew word. It's Numbers 23, 19. Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. And this is the verse that says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent or change his mind. (laughs) What is going on? Uh, We've got Exodus 32, Moses saying, please change your mind. God saying, well, he's not saying, he's being described as, God being described as changing his mind. And then the very next usage of that word is in Numbers 23, where it says God does not change his mind. So what on earth is going on? Let's look at Genesis 6-6 again, where it says the Lord was sorry or changed his mind about making man on the earth. He was sorry he made man on the earth, or he changed his mind about making man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Well, um, there are in the Bible what are called anthropomorphisms. These are descriptions of God having a hand or a foot or a wing or eyes, or uh, I I believe there are instances of him having feathers, uh, things of that nature. Well, um, these are descriptions that are used to illustrate something about the nature, the character of God. These are not employed by the writers of the Bible to be taken in a woodenly literal sense. In the same way, there are in the Bible what are called anthropopathisms, where certain emotions and affections are ascribed to God for the same purpose as anthropomorphisms to give us some sort of indication of God's character and God's nature. So I think we can give uh, just a really simple example of this. Uh, if we Let's go back to the text, and let me use side over here. Let's go to Genesis 1, about verse 20. We'll drop in. Okay, so God said, let the waters teem with the swarms. That's an interesting phrase. Or you could just say, let the waters swarm with. (laughs) Living creatures, let the birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God created the great sea monsters, verse 21, and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind, and every winged bird after its kind. And then we get this phrase that comes up after God creates things in Genesis 1, and God saw that it was good. We get that phrase over and over again. God saw that it was good. On each day, let's drop down to verse 25, after he made the beasts of the earth after their kind, God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. You just see it over and over again in Genesis 1. Now, why am I bringing this up? Um, well, because this is an example of an anthropopathism or, or an anthropomorphism, however you want to categorize this. When it says, here's again in Genesis 1:31, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. He's declaring things to be good, even in the text. When that happens... It's not that God created all things and then sat back and thought, okay, I need to evaluate this. And then he decided, you know what? That's actually good. That's really good. That's not why the text includes that uh, for us. But the text includes that phrasing because it's telling us something about the character and nature of God, and it's telling us something about the condition of what was created. So when God said it was good, after he created birds. Wow, that's good. He's not surprised 
by what he's done. He knew the whole time. He knew before he created it, it would be good. But Scripture's telling us that God, in, by his nature, only creates things that are good. That's why it's repeated after everything he creates. He only creates things in a good state because he's a good God. That's telling us something about, about God. It's also telling us something about the condition of the creature. When God created that bird and said it was good, that, cre- that bird existed in a good state. We're getting all that information through the phrase that we can understand, God saying, oh, that's good. That's a good thing. And so it's using language that we would use to tell us something about the condition of the creation. And we see that similar thing going on here in Genesis 6-6. The Lord was sorry he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Well, why? Because man was evil, right? You look back up to verse 5, he was comprehensively evil. And so God, what, what is the appropriate reaction of God to sin? Well, there's wrath and there's grief, right? Um, we see both of that, both of those things in this passage. And we also see an explanation of the condition of man in verse 6, Genesis 6, 6, when it says that the Lord was sorry he had made man on the earth, that's how deplorable that condition is now, because man is so infested with sin, man is so evil at this time, that the Lord is sorry he had made man on the earth. It's not that God didn't know it was going to happen, and that God is like caught off guard, and is like, wow, my creation really got out of hand. And now he's reacting like, I can't believe I even created them. That, that's, that's not what's being said here. But instead, we are discovering more about the character and nature of God that He is so pure, so holy, he can't put up with any amount of sin in his presence, and that when mankind gets to this state, he must respond, because mankind was in such a bad state. So this is one of those instances of the Bible using man's language to help us understand something more about who God is and who man is, okay? And he goes on to say in verse 7, the Lord says, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. And this is the result of man's sin, is that they be destroyed, that they face judgment, that they die. That's what sin demands. Sin demands that someone die. The guilty party die. And that's what's about to happen in the flood. Uh, I want to make a note here because the next verse, Genesis 6, 8, is really important. It says that Noah found grace. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And at this point, I want to pause, and I want to pull up... um, Let's see. We will go to the churchofjesuschrist.org page. Um, Why is it doing this again? It did this in one of my other videos. Let's see. Let me flip here and then flip back to there. That doesn't work. Let's see. How am I supposed to do this? Let me... Oh, I know. I'm supposed to go here, and then I go here, and then I go here, and then I go there. Ha-ha! I did it. I, I conquered technology. This is an interesting phrase that's made, uh, an interesting statement, an interesting claim, an interesting assertion. It says here in uh, on the churchofjesuschrist.org page, uh, 
that there is spiritual safety in following the Lord's prophet. Now look at the first statement here. Thanks to the restored gospel, we know a lot more about Noah than what is found in the Old Testament. Okay. Joseph Smith's inspired translation of Genesis 6, found in Moses 8, reveals that Noah was one of God's great prophets. He was ordained and sent forth to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. He walked and talked with God, and he was chosen to reestablish God's children on the earth after the flood. So you do have to wonder, what uh, are the items, the new items found in Moses 8 that we don't have in Genesis 6? Well, this is a big one right here, that Noah was, why does it do that? That Noah was one of God's great prophets. Uh, the Bible, of course, doesn't say that. This is something that comes up in the book of Moses and the Pearl of Great Price. It would be new information if you believe that the Pearl of Great Price is new scripture. And that he was sent forth to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. That also isn't in the Old Testament. The other stuff is, is in there, but, but not these things. That he was a prophet who preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to challenge you on this point by saying... Um, is this additional information to the Word of God? Is this new information, or is this a competing storyline? All right. When you read Moses 8, which I have, I've read all of the book of Moses now, you get a different story than what you have in the Bible. I want you to see in Genesis 6-7, God says he's going to blot out all of creation because of sin. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. It doesn't say he earned favor. It doesn't say uh, that he was better than everybody else. It says that he found favor or he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That's the word for, for grace. Now, this is a critical concept because uh, God wasn't sitting back and saying, okay, prove, prove that you're good enough and then you'll be saved. God has never saved that, said that. He's, he's never told people, prove that you're good enough, and then you'll be saved. He didn't do that to Noah. Now, it does go on to say in verse 9 that Noah was a righteous man. It even says that he was blameless in his time, and he walked with God. Okay, uh, here's a whole bunch of references if you're looking at that pain all the way on the right-hand side. There's a lot of, a lot of information there about this verse. But uh, he was a righteous man, blameless in his time, and he walked with God. But let's not forget that preceding that statement is the statement that he found grace or found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And it, it's never presented in the Bible that someone earned favor with God. It, it's just not there. Uh, Noah was, by God's power, enabled to live a righteous and blameless life in his time. Because of God's grace... Noah was a righteous man. Because he found favor in the eyes of the Lord, not through anything he had done, he was then able to live a life that reflected that favor of God. That's a very important distinction from the book of Moses that does not present it that way, but the Bible does in, in telling us the story in this way. Okay, I think that's a, an important thing for you to, to think about. And then, of course, uh, God does go on to flood the earth, this is a just and righteous penalty for sin, that God would blot out man, wipe out man whom he had created. And you can also take note here, too, that God has the right to do this. 
when you think about the flood, this is people dying. This isn't like, you know, the, the nursery in uh, some sort of church building with smiling animals floating in a boat. This is a lot of people calling out to Noah and his family who are safe in the ark to be saved. And it was too late for them. And with their final breaths, they're calling out to be rescued before they're drowned by God because of their own sin. This is pretty serious stuff, isn't it? When you think of it that way, this is a, a very heavy section of Scripture. Uh, this isn't just, you know, smiling hippopotamus sitting on a wooden boat. This is the entire earth being plunged beneath the water, being drowned because of their wickedness. Yet Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. His family was spared. That's pretty amazing stuff. Now after, we'll go to Genesis 9, after the flood, we have a, uh, a covenant. Before we get to that, we'll just kind of read through these verses quickly, give an overview. God blessed Noah and his sons, said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. This is the Great Reset. You hear a lot of talk about the Great Reset these days with the pandemic and everything. <laughs> well, this is a real Great Reset, and we're back to the commission that was given to Adam and Eve, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And you go through here, and it talks about how the animals are going to submit to Noah. They're going to be uh, afraid of Noah and his family. They can steward the animals then because they have that authority. And they're now able to eat meat. This is new. Verse 4, you shall not... Well, I guess I should go to verse 3. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. This is new. This is new. This is the start of something new. Uh, you... Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, with its blood. And you see that repeated throughout the law, particularly in Leviticus 17. And you also get a, a new command for mankind here uh, called capital punishment. Verses 5 through 7 talk about this, or 5 through 6, I guess, that if a man kills another man, then he shall be killed. Whoever sheds man's blood, verse 6, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. That's new. That's a new thing. Lots of, lots of new stuff going on. And then you get to the covenant part, uh, verses 8 and following. In verse 9, he says very explicitly, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, with every living creature. Well, what's this covenant? Verse 11, this is the covenant that all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. And this is the sign of the covenant, verse 12, um, for all successive generations. Verse 13, he's going to set his bow or his rainbow in the cloud, and it's a sign of a covenant between God and the earth. God will never again flood the earth. That's the, that's the covenant. And Again, we get some more anthropomorphic language or anthropopathic language. It says when he sees the bow in the cloud, he will remember the covenant he made. Did, does God forget the covenant covenants that he makes? No, he doesn't. Uh, but this is, you know, again, language telling us something about the nature and character of God, that he's faithful, that he will not uh, go back on this covenant. That's verse 16. Uh, when he looks upon it, he will remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature. Okay. 
Uh, so interesting stuff. And then you've got Noah and his sons who are set to repopulate the earth. In Genesis 10, we then see how that plays out. In Genesis chapter 10, we see uh, Noah's family from them coming all the nations of the earth. And this is what's traditionally been called the table of nations, Genesis chapter 10. It's debated as to whether it's a comprehensive list of nations or if it is a uh, partial list of nations. But you have a whole bunch of, of nations listed there. And this is where we get all of our nations, Genesis chapter 10. Now, I'm going just to read for you. Let me flip back over to the screen and go to a question from, or uh, an article from Got Questions, gotquestions.org, a great website. I recommend that website wholeheartedly. So if you've got a question, go to gotquestions.org and they will give you a biblical answer. But I want to read to you their summary of the table of nations in Genesis 10. It says, the table of nations presents the biblical ethnological view that all nations descend from Noah through three of his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. It is not known whether the list of 70 was meant, that's 70 nations, was meant to be exhaustive or if there were some nations left out intentionally or accidentally. The accuracy of what we do know about the table has been called into question by skeptics whose polemical objections tend to be defective and insubstantial. And in this article, it talks about some of those retorts. If you want to read the biblical answer to those retorts, go to this article. What is the table of nations at gotquestions.org? I'll put a link in the, in the description. Due to the archaic nature of the source material, the veracity of the table ultimately remains undeterminable. In the end, those who accept it do so by faith, taking it for granted, or yeah, taking it for granted as a part of a larger justifiable perspective. Those who reject it essentially do so for the same reasons. Okay, it's a there are a lot of things written on the table of nations, a lot of interesting things that I don't know if I would uh, uh, totally endorse. In fact, I know I don't totally endorse, but it's interesting to read through. When you get to chapter eleven of Genesis, though, that's when you get to the Tower of Babel. And this happens, uh, it's kind of like a, a flashback to before you have these uh, 70 nations that are listed in chapter 10, because you have the 70 nations that are all speaking different languages. Well, in chapter 11 of Genesis, we find out how they got those different languages. So it's going back in time just a bit. Let me pull that up. Uh, Genesis chapter 11, it says the whole earth used the same language and the same words. That's what was going on uh, as Noah and his family were repopulating the earth. They were of one lip, you could say. Uh, they had few or one set of words. Uh, they used the same language, okay, the same language. And it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another... Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone, and they used tar for mortar. They said, Come, let us build for ourselves. Important language to note there. Let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach to heaven, and let us make for ourselves, there's the phrase again, a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Well, God interrupts these plans as they try to make a name for themselves. They try to uh, av they try to avoid God's command of spreading out and filling the whole earth. 
and they make a tower for themselves to reach up into heaven. Now, that's pretty interesting, isn't it? Pretty interesting stuff. It says that the Lord came down. This is verse 5. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. Another anthropomorphism. Could he not see from heaven? Well, the Lord sees all things no matter where he is, right? But it's, again, giving us insight as to the character and nature of God that he's involved in all things and that uh, telling us something about man, that man needs to be examined. We're learning that through this anthropomorphism. Verse 6, God said, Behold, they are one people, they all have the same language, and this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. So come, let us, this is important, let us go down, and go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. Okay? Uh, you see that the verb for go down, if you're looking in the, the pane on the right-hand side, it's plural. It's a, a plural verb. That's why it says, come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. This is a sign of God's judgment that he would confuse people with language. We've been studying this in the book of 1 Corinthians lately. 1 Corinthians 14 talks about tongues in the church. You see tongues in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 10. You see it in 1 Corinthians. The purpose of tongues is to confuse people, to leave them in their state of judgment, uh, particularly the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel who rejected their Messiah, tongues were a sign of judgment against them. Well, you see here too at the Tower of Babel, this confusing of languages was a sign of God's judgment against the people who were seeking to build for themselves a tower and to make for themselves a name. God confused their languages, set them against one another, spread them throughout the earth, so he was accomplishing his purposes of filling the whole earth, and he was showing them that he alone is God and they cannot make for themselves a name because... Uh, he is the only one who is that high and lifted up to be honored and worshiped. All right, there you go. There are some things that you can consider, you can chew on. Again, going back to uh, Moses 8 and Genesis 6, consider the narrative differences. There are some pretty strong narrative differences there. Consider why that is. Uh, ask around. Have some conversation about it. Feel free to send me a question. <clears throat> no questions off the table. I particularly like to chat with those who want to have an honest conversation. For those who just want to debate, my time is extremely limited, so be warned. But uh, if you have some honest questions, would love to chat with you. Thanks for listening, and God bless.